Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Welcome to the Dialogue Podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, and in this episode, we're excited to present Professor Benjamin E. Park, author of the just-published history titled Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier. The story Ben tells in his book is riveting, as was the presentation he gave to the Orange County Miller-Eccles Study Group, which forms the body of this podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, we hope you'll consider a Dialogue membership. We've made every article ever published by Dialogue free online, as well as all the podcasts we've done since we began recording them. Be sure to check out our three newest podcast series. One is called Dialogue Heritage, and it takes a look back at the earlier days of Dialogue and examines how we got to where we are today. I was glued to my earbuds as I listened to these episodes. Then there is the Dialogue Book Report podcast, which discusses important new books of interest to Latter-day Saints. And finally, there is the series Dialogue Out Loud, which will consist of professional readings of some of the best articles and stories of Dialogue past. The first episode is a short story by Levi Peterson called Bode and Iris. As many of you know, Levi is one of the greatest of Mormon storytellers. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast, be sure to do so through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we want to remind you that we depend on the generosity of our donors to ensure the continued vitality of the Premier Mormon Studies Journal. We urge you to go online to dialoguejournal.com to visit our revamped website and consider the various membership options. And now, a brief introduction of our speaker. Ben Park received his doctorate from Cambridge University in England and currently teaches American religious history at Sam Houston State University. His scholarly work has appeared in over a dozen academic journals. He serves as co-editor of the Mormon Studies Review, as well as on the executive boards of the Mormon History Association and Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. He's married to Catherine and they are the parents of two children. And now to Ben's fascinating presentation. In June of 1844, when Joseph Smith was being marched off to Carthage for an unknown future, he turned to his secretary, William Clayton, and gave him some instructions. William Clayton was not only the personal secretary to Joseph Smith, but he was also the secretary to the Council of Fifty, an organization that I'll talk about later, but had been created several months earlier. And Joseph Smith told William Clayton, I want you to go burn the minutes from those meeting records. He knew that the records, if seen in a certain way, would be understood as not only salacious, but potentially treasonous. And he wanted to make sure they did not fall into the wrongs. Thankfully to historians and all of us here, William Clayton chose to disobey his prophet. And instead of burning the minutes, buried them instead. And they remained buried for several months until after Joseph Smith was killed in the jail, things seemed to simmer down, and uh, normalcy seemed to return to Nauvoo, and, and William dug them back up. But those minutes might as well have remained buried because they remained restricted 
from believers and critics and scholars all the same, for 175 years. And I don't think I need to tell all of you, but when you have a set of documents that are already controversial in nature, and then you make them a secret and restrict access, lots of legends and myths start cropping up. And so for those of you who know a little bit about Nauvoo have probably heard about the Council of 50 Minutes and were yearning to actually get access to them. Um, I know I was among those in that camp. And in about 2014, the LDS Church announced that they were going to release the minutes to the general public for the first time. And oh boy, we were all excited. And then in 2016, they were published in a volume of the Joseph Papers Project, the Council of 50 Minutes. And everyone got them, raced to the bookstores or on Amazon and paid Bezos however they wanted to get. And they got the minutes finally in their hand. And there was kind of a collective sigh of disappointment. Because it turns out the minutes did not have all the salacious details we thought they'd have. They didn't have Joseph Smith being crowned a king in an ornate uh, 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 coronation ceremony. They didn't have the saints plotting the assassination of a sitting U.S. president. Those were real rumors going around of what were in the minutes. And so some were a bit disappointed. But as a scholar of early American religion and politics, my first book looked at early American conceptions of nation between the revolution and and the 1830s. I got these documents and a light bulb went off in my head and I just devoured them because these documents I immediately saw when I first started looking at them. I realized that they were the most potent expressions of democratic anxiety in antebellum America. Now, those are a lot of, of, of potent words, and I want to I dissect a bit. But what I mean by that is, while a lot of people were disappointed in the Council of 50 Minutes because they weren't as crazy as a, some assumed they would be, I looked at them, and I saw them as a radical expression of common sentiments felt throughout an American society where many feared that the, the, the United States was spinning out of control. And so rather than seeing the Council of 50, let alone Nauvoo, as this radical exception to the American story, I decided I wanted to write a book to show how Nauvoo epitomized some of the central stories, the central tensions, the central anxieties that you'd find throughout American society during that time. Right? Because we tend to have a habit of how we frame Nauvoo, either within the LDS culture, we see Nauvoo as God's correction to a fallen society. A godly put people set upon a hill, literally on the bluff with their glimmering temple, but distinct from the world around them. Or if you're a critic of the church, you might think that Nauvoo is a radical outlier. These quixotic, um, weird performers who don't really fit into society, and so they're just out there. So whichever side of that divide one might be on, they would think Nauvoo and the broader culture diverge from one another. What I want to show in this book is that divide is not as wide as we typically think, but that Nauvoo is an American story. And it matters not just because it's a fascinating history, and it is, trust me, a fascinating history, but it's also a revealing moment to understand America's uh, democratic tradition. All right. When the saints arrived in Illinois in the winter of 1838-39, they were religious refugees. 
Americans. <clears throat> they had just been kicked out by a state-sanctioned mob out of Missouri, which included an executive order signed by the governor that declared the saints must be either exterminated or driven from the state. That does something to you if you have that type of opposition. And when they arrive on Illinois soil, they arrived in a state that was the perhaps the most opportune place for them to resettle camp. Because Illinois was in a very precarious but opportunistic position. In many ways, Illinois tried to pattern itself as the antithesis to Missouri. Illinois and Missouri were the two frontier states, and back then, Illinois and Missouri were the frontier of America. They were the two frontier states that would represent the divergent trajectories, the divergent traditions that American Western expansion could be. In Missouri, you have the slave state based on populist, majoritarian, demotic rule. The epitome of Jacksonian democracy, right? No holds barred, everything's controlled by the man's man at the local level. And then you have Illinois, the free state. They've abolished slavery. They're, they try to form an energetic form of democracy that embraces lots of different people together. So whereas the Missourians kick the Mormons out, Illinois says, well, this is our chance to show that we're better than Missouri. We will try to embrace these religious refugees and take them into our system. But the reasons they embraced the Mormons was not just because they were good people, but also because there was a specific political context in Nauvoo that made the Mormons an enticing uh, colleagues. And that's because Illinois was a growing state at the time. In fact, in 1841, following the 1840 census, Illinois was granted three new congressional seats from the federal government, reflective of their growing population. And when you have three new congressional seats, that means you're going to have new races, you're going to have new politicians, and you're going to need to develop new voting bases. And what made this all the more uh, uh, significant was at the time, Illinois was split between the two major political parties. The Democrats, the party of Andrew Jackson, all about state control. And the Whigs, the party of Henry Clay, that's all about working together and forming an American system to improve the lives of everyday citizens. Now, these parties had been going back and forth over who has control over Illinois. One more component to this potent mix. In 1839 and 1840, the Illinois State Legislature passed a series of new laws that grant suffrage the ability to vote to all adult white men who live in the city for only six months. So let's put all those ingredients together and see what we have. We have a state that's trying to act as a future for the nation, so they see themselves as on a pedestal. We have some really important elections coming up where we're going to need new voting bases. We have split political parties who are trying to get as many voters as possible to push them over the edge. We have new voting laws that allows anyone who just sets foot in Illinois for six months will be able to vote. And you have thousands of Mormon potential voters arriving on the Illinois soil. So politicians trip over each other trying to court the Mormon vote. All the aspiring politicians running for any office that in some way overlaps with this new track of land that the Mormons buy on the scenic bend of the Mississippi River. Here's a surveyor's map of what was at the time commerce looked like in 1835. 
All these politicians are promising the saints, we will grant you lots of, of, uh, of authority in the city. We will leave you alone. We will support you in your quest to get redress from uh, the Missourians. And the saints are anxious to take advantage of this dynamic. For the first time, it seems like they're going to be in control of their future. Because politicians are forced to listen to their interests. Um, so they established Nauvoo on the scenic bend of the Illinois River, known as Commerce. Well, this city had all, this area had already gone through lots of changes by this time. It was originally known as Quashkima to the Native American tribes who lived in the region. Uh, later, it is given as payment to War of 1812 uh, veterans. But like most veterans paid with Western land, they don't want to go settle this foreign territory. So they sell it to speculators. And speculators try consistently to unload these land, but no one wants it. At one point, they call the land Venus. I don't know why they thought that that would be enticing. Another point, they name it commerce to represent that it's going to be an economic outpost in America's growing capitalistic system. But then in 1839 and 1840, they send, sell it to the Mormons. The Mormons rechristened it Nauvoo. And you can see they're very organized and detailing what this new city is going to be like. But they recognize that they'll be able to make this a permanent hub and avoid what took place in Missouri. They're going to have to find a way to game the system. Make sure that politicians continually listen to them. And now that they have politicians tripping over each other, like I said, to gain the Mormon vote, they decide, all right, we need to make sure that we are smart with this. And so they decide that the most efficient way to make sure politicians listen to them is through a system we call block voting which means the church and city leaders will declare which politicians they feel best represent their interests. They will announce who those politicians are, and all the Latter-day Saints within Nauvoo were expected to follow that direction and vote for them, and that's how they could wield their support. And here's the thing that surprised me the most. Politicians eagerly participated in this. They were eager to gain the Mormon support because they know that those votes could be decisive in these significant elections. Let me give you one example. Uh, oh, here's John Taylor before I get to that example. Here's John Taylor defending this block voting pattern. He says, it can serve no good purpose that Nauvoo or the church should disenfranchise that one half of Nauvoo should disenfranchise the other half thus rendering Nauvoo powerless as far as politics can be concerned. That is, if half of our city votes for one politician and the other half votes for the other, that cancels each other out. Instead, we need to pool all our votes together. Um, John Harper. John Harper is running for one of the new uh, congressional seats in 1842, and he wants the Mormon vote. So he writes this letter. Uh, directed to Joseph Smith, where he requests Joseph Smith's private support as, as prophet, as well as the public support among the people of Nauvoo. And he promises them that not only have I never participated in any uh, anti-Mormon conventions, but if elected, I will make sure to empower Nauvoo even further so you can have all the authority you need to be safe. But it doesn't go according to Harper's wishes. Because the very next day, after he sends this letter, 
he is forced to write another letter to Joseph Smith. What happens in those 24 hours? Well, word spreads that John Harper had indeed attended an anti-Mormon convention the previous year. So he has to dash off another letter now that he's caught red-handed, admitting to Joseph Smith that, yes, it's true, I had indeed attended an anti-Mormon convention last year. I'm sorry I lied about that. But I promise that I only attended to assure everyone there that the Mormons are an asset to our community. And that you guys need to calm down in your opposition and see Nauvoo for what it is, a blessing for Illinois. I hope it's not too much of a spoiler to say that Harper did not receive Nauvoo's support. <laughs> but the politicians that did earn Nauvoo's support were richly rewarded. Let me detail how voting took place, because voting was very different back then in the 1840s than it is today. Um, let's see, California, the, your primary voting was last week, right? So you would go to your precinct and you would march to an individual booth, right? And you would enter in the votes into what, whatever system they use here in California. Um, back in the 1840s America, you voted vocally, meaning you would go to your precinct and you would state your name and you would state who you were voting for and the officials would write you down. So they know who you're voting for. It's not a secret ballot. That comes in some states, not until the 20th century. So let me use the 1842 election as an example. And on August 1st, 1842, was a big statewide election in Illinois, including voting for the new governor, as well as statewide, countywide, and citywide races. Um, by this point, the Democratic Party had earned Nauvoo's support, led by Stephen A. Douglas, who becomes famous for his other political activities, who has succeeded in proving in Joseph Smith's mind that the Democrats are our friends and we should go out to support our friends. That's what Joseph Smith says in the church's newspaper as a sign we should vote for the Mormons. Voting then takes place in the office of Hiram Smith. Hiram Smith, Joseph Smith's brother, assistant president of the entire church. Uh, that's one of the precincts in Nauvoo. Uh, they would march into Hiram Smith's office where they're likely, they'd walk into the room, they would see the clerk who's taking down your voting records, and they're likely Joseph and Hiram Smith all just hanging out in the room as well. <laughs> and then they would state their name and they would declare who they were voting for in the 10 state, city, and countywide races. Of the 457 people who vote that day in Nauvoo, only 11 do not follow the prescribed pattern. This is what that kind of block voting looks like. As you can tell, Mormons in 1840s are the same in the, more, in the 20 teens. They're very efficient and organized. As you might imagine, those outside of Nauvoo did not look too kindly on this process. To them, this was a betrayal of the democratic system. See, democracy, we take for granted in 2020. But back then, it was still an experiment. And many, because there were not many examples of a democracy working, especially in a large context like America. So those outside of Nauvoo feared that this un, unproven uh, system might be upended through the Mormons. Because the Mormons have two strikes going against them with this voting system. One, for a democracy to function, you have to be a rational actor. That's strike one against the Mormons, because they're already seen as crazy, right? But then there's strike two, that 
for a democracy to function, you have to have what they emphasize to be a per, the personal conscience. The ability to vote based on your own interests, not the interests of whatever your leaders say, especially your ecclesiastical leaders say. So whereas most Americans did not see a separation between religion and politics, they did urge a differentiation between political leaders and religious leaders. And what's going on in Nauvoo seems to be a betrayal of that system. Here's how Thomas Sharp, the editor of the nearby Warsaw Signal, framed it. We believe that the Mormons have the same rights as other religious bodies possess. But whenever they, as a people, step beyond the proper sphere of a religious denomination and become a political body, this press stands to a uh, pledge to take a stand against them. Meaning that by that point, the Mormons are going to become a threat. Now, I just want to say a little more on the politics, and then I want to move on to another part of this talk. But it's not just that the Mormons are voting this way, and this block voting at the dictation of, a, of an ecclesiastical leader is already seen as a problem. It's also that politicians are willing to play along with this that worry the non-Mormon neighbors. Because that meant to the, Thomas Sharp's mind that there's then no way to bring justice to the Mormons. And perhaps there's no bigger issue that highlights that case is as in the issue of the extradition of the attempts to extradite Joseph Smith back to Missouri. I won't go into too much details here in the presentation, but feel free to bring it up in discussion. In fact, we have an expert on one of these extradition cases here in the room, and Morris, who wrote a fabulous uh, article that's, that's still the definitive article on the second extradition, extradition case of Joseph Smith. Um, but to simplify, at three separate occurrences in Nauvoo, Missouri's government tries to extradite Joseph Smith back to the state for to stand trial based on a number of different charges. Some charges stemming from the 1838 conflict, another charge stemming from Lilburn Boggs, the governor of Missouri, when someone attempted to kill him in 1842. And in each of these times, Nauvoo tried to expand their city authority to make, it as, to make a shield to protect Joseph Smith from these extradition orders. They did so specifically through orders of habeas corpus. Now, the first time... There's this extradition attempt for Joseph Smith. Stephen A. Douglas, who by that time is a, is a court judge in Illinois, finds a way to get Joseph Smith on a writ of habeas corpus. The second time, Nauvoo decides, hey, we're going to do this on our own authority. And they pass new city council measures that grant the city court authority to try uh, these cases that are brought in, even though you're not supposed to try cases that are outside your jurisdiction. Um, in fact, one of my city, uh, my favorite city council resolutions, it's a true sign that you're a nerd when you, when you can say a phrase, one of my favorite city council resolutions. <laughs> but one of my favorite city council resolutions that was passed in the midst of one of these extradition attempts dictated that any Nauvoo citizen who is arrested while away from Nauvoo for crimes committed outside of Nauvoo on an arrest warrant signed above Nauvoo still has to be returned to Nauvoo for a trial for habeas corpus. Let's just say that doesn't follow the traditional precedent of law in early America. Now, that second time when they're passing all these measures, the state politicians find themselves in a quandary. 
because they're like, well, we want to stay on the good side of the Mormons, but we also don't want to vindicate these measures that they're doing at the city level. So they convinced Joseph Smith to be tried in the circuit court, and that's uh, the, the case that, that Morris has written an excellent article on, and Joseph Smith is freed based on, on, on a legal measure. But then there's a third trial the next summer. Um, this time, there's another arrest warrant for Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith is off with Emma, visiting Emma's extended family. So imagine you're visiting your in-laws when you find out there's an arrest warrant for you. That's going to do wonders for your family circumstances, right? The arresting officers, by the way, pose as Mormon missionaries to go meet with him and then arrest him. And then they're marching off to Missouri, where it seems that Joseph Smith's luck has finally run out. Until a local lawyer by the name of Cyrus Walker who just so happens to be running as a Whig for one of the new congressional seats, finds out about this and goes, hey, this is my chance to befriend the Mormons. So he gathers together some of his legal and, and, uh, and political friends together, and they go out and they arrest the arresting officers. While Joseph Smith is still in their possession, right? And then they're this intertwined, arrested company not knowing what to do, and while they're deciding they're going to go visit a circuit court to unwind this whole mess, they're intercepted by who? The Nauvoo Legion, who has come out to save the day. And they march Joseph Smith back to Nauvoo, where they hold a big banquet at Joseph Smith's home, place the two arresting officers at the head of the table, who are probably wondering what the heck is going on. And the Nauvoo Municipal Court once again grants Joseph Smith a release. This time, though, this, both the Whig and Democratic authorities in the state decide, you know what? We're just going to wash our hands of the whole measure and respect that decision. In return, we expect the Mormons to vote for us. And this leaves Joseph Smith in a dilemma. Because Cyrus Walker, the Whig, who orchestrated the whole way to save him from getting to Missouri, he expects the Mormon vote in return because Joseph Smith promised he would vote for him. And when Joseph Smith promises to vote for you, you expect that means Nauvoo's voting for you. But the Democratic governor, Thomas Ford, and the Democratic candidate for that same congressional seat, a guy by the name of Joseph Hogue, they promised Joseph, look, if you vote for us, we'll act like your illegal habeas corpus hearing. We'll act like that's legal. And in fact, we'll strengthen Nauvoo's city power so that you can keep doing this in Missouri if Missouri keeps acting as a, as a problem for you. So what's Joseph Smith left to do? Both parties are expecting his vote. Well, he's has a in this torture relationship, he tries to come up with a with a process to satisfy both sides, but he ends up alienating both. The day before the election in August, Hiram Smith gets up before the general conference and says, "I have had a revelation that the saints should vote for the democratic candidate Joseph Hogue." And then he sits down. And Joseph Smith stands up and said, I am voting for Cyrus Walker, but only because I have a personal friendship with him. And let me say this. Hiram has never had a revelation and it proved to be false. <laughs> so Joseph maintained his personal promise to vote for Cyrus Walker. But the Mormons voted for Hogue. In grand fashion, about 1,200 votes to 90 in Nauvoo. Hogue wins based on that, based on those votes. 
You can imagine that Whigs were pretty mad about that. So were the Democrats, because even though they came out the victors in that thing, they recognized that their alliance with, with Joseph Smith was probably not as firm as they would like. So by this time, Joseph Smith has burned the bridges with both political parties. He turns his attention to the federal government, because if the state powers aren't going to save him, the federal government might. They, write, they draft a number of petitions. Among those petitions are a request to make Nauvoo a federal territory, similar to a Native American reservation, therefore outside of state authority. That would solve it. They also request the federal government to raise an army of 100,000 soldiers to protect the Mormons. Federal government does not go for either of those options. They write the five leading candidates for the American presidency, asking if you are elected, what will you do for the Mormons? Of the five candidates they write, only three respond. Of those three who respond, none of them promise support for the Mormons. In a fit of desperation, they announce, well, maybe we should nominate Joseph Smith for president. And so Joseph Smith runs on a, on a presidential campaign. That's quite fascinating, and I could talk about more in the discussion. Uh, but one of the main platforms is the argument that the federal government should be strong enough to intervene when the state's no longer willing to protect uh, the rights of minority groups. But just as a contingency, in case Joseph Smith is not elected president, they decide we might need a backup plan. And that's when, in March, Joseph Smith organizes a new council. Now, Joseph Smith had made a habit throughout his life of creating these new councils as the church and circumstances develop. Um, but this new council is very different. This new council was the first council that was explicitly not only religious, but also explicitly political. They called this new council the kingdom of God and his laws. And the title goes on for like two more lines. It was a horrible title that like a PR firm would have hated. They colloquially refer to it as a council of 50, because about 50 men are inducted into the council. This council is very clear in its purposes. They state that the American government has failed us. The democratic experiment has run its course. Everywhere we look, not just in America, but in the broader world, everywhere we look, we see division, strife, wars, Poverty, governments unwilling to protect the rights of its citizens. The only way to restore stability is to bring in the voice of God. And so they are going to establish a theocracy to once again return God's voice in the realm of the voices of men. Now, how am I doing on time? Oh boy, I've already talked uh, a bit more than I expected. Oh well. Um, let me talk about the other dimension, because the same week Joseph Smith establishes the Council of 50, there's another major thing going on in Nauvoo. Um, Emma Smith, Joseph Smith's wife, has a series of four major public meetings. They're under the garb of the Relief Society, but in reality, they're much more, because they're taking in all the women and some men, uh, residents of Nauvoo, they gather together. 2,000 people come to hear her speak. The topic of her conversation, the dangers of polygamy. <laughs> now, 
to give a little backstory to get to that moment, because I want to emphasize that it's not a coincidence that the same week that Emma Smith is holding these public meetings denouncing polygamy, Joseph Smith is establishing an all-male council in which all initiates are sworn to promise that, that they'll uh, not reveal anything that takes place, not only to everyone, but especially to not even their wives. <laughs> that that same week, Emma Smith is holding these public opposition meetings. Now, if the external opposition to Joseph Smith's vision is based on these political activities I've been discussing. The internal division within Nauvoo is rooted in Joseph Smith's domestic practices. Now, the winter of 1840 to 41 is in many ways the most doctrinally rich period of Joseph Smith's life since the very first few years of the church where we get most of the Doctrine and Covenants revelations. Between the fall of 1840 and the spring of 1841, Joseph Smith preaches for the first time many of the doctrines that, uh, the, that are still central to the LDS church today. The eternal nature of matter, the eternal union of families, vicarious baptisms for the dead, the connective power of the priesthood, kind of a refinement of the doctrines that make the LDS tradition unique. All of these doctrines, by the way, are closely tethered to the new temple that's been announced that's going to be built on the bluff overlooking the city below. But whereas when they first announced the Nauvoo Temple, they view it as a replication of what they had done in Kirtland, and you can see in these early architectural renderings that it's just kind of a, a more grandiose version of the Kirtland Temple, missing a lot of the architectural things that we associate with the Nauvoo Temple today. Over the next year after they announced the temple, um, the theology that underpins the temple and, uh, that, and, and explains the temple and justifies the temple transforms with those doctrinal revelations that I had mentioned before. So by the time that they have the cornerstone ceremony on April 6, 1841, this is in many ways envisioned as something new, something grandiose. These rituals that are going to take place in the temple are, according to the revelation that's now canonized as DNC 124, rituals that have been hidden from the, the world since the foundations of the world. But the same week that the Nauvoo Cornerstone Ceremony takes place, a grand celebration with thousands of ten attendees and, and parades and choirs and a band, the night before that, uh, that celebration, there's another important gathering. Uh, Joseph Smith gathers with Joseph Noble, a close confidant of Joseph Smith and a longtime friend, and Joseph Noble's sister-in-law, a woman by the name of, of Louisa Beeman, who on that evening was disguised as a man by wearing a lawn coat and a hat. And that evening, April 5th, the night before the Nauvoo Cornerstone Temple Ceremony, Joseph Noble seals... Louisa Beeman and Joe Smith together in, a, in, in what I argue is the first plural marriage. Now, in some ways, we see these things as distinct. We also see this uh, domestic arrangements and the, the family doctrine that comes out in Nauvoo as distinct from the political culture. But what struck me while researching this book was how interconnected these actions are. On the one hand, the same priesthood doctrine that's justifying this new temple is also used to justify these new plural unions. That humanity's arrangements are giving way to God's arrangements, the connective fissures necessary to hold the family together in a world of chaos are what's necessitating new family arrangements. But I also find connections between these new marriages 
with Joseph Smith's political ideas. That democracy, society, the, the democratic culture of early America was spinning out of control, and there needs to be some way to hold it together. And the patriarchal teachings, the temple keys promised in what's going to be the Nauvoo Temple, are also unlocking these new domestic arrangements. Now, the other thing that struck me while researching this book with regard to the, the domestic arrangement aspect was how much it changes after that first sealing to Louisa Beeman on April 5th, 1841. Because the theology Joe Smith uses to both justify and expand the practice changes at several crucial moments over the next few years that I try to detail in the book. As new ideas are considered, new people are admitted, as, uh, as, as they're trying to respond to new crises. But I thought it was crucial to look at it from the perspective of not just Joe Smith who's introducing the practice, but also those who tried to live it. And the person who really, there were two women who really stood out to me, who served as, as crucial viewpoints to understand these developments. One is Sarah Ann Whitney, who's 17 at the time that she sealed to Joe Smith in the summer of 1842. And the other is Eliza R. Snow, in her late 30s, sealed to Joseph Smith at the very same time about the same month of that summer of 1842. Now, I could talk more about Sarah and Whitney during the, the Q&A if you'd like, but I do want to say a few words about Eliza, and then I'll try to wrap things up and get to discussion. Um, Eliza R. Snow does not explicitly talk about her polygamous union to Joe Smith until several decades later, but she does leave hints. On the very day that she is sealed to Joseph Smith as a plural wife, she writes in her diary, this is a day of great confusion to my mind. Unless she was, you know, stumped by the New York Times pus, uh, 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 crossword puzzle that day. I'm thinking she's talking about polygamy there. Um, but the way she explains this covenant she just entered into fits into this broader context of democratic distrust. She likened the chaos of the world around her to the thunderstorm that rained down on her secret wedding day. The rage of elements, she wrote, reminded her of the flimsy nature of humanity, especially when compared to the permanence and the stability offered by the covenant that she just entered. The women who entered polygamy in Nauvoo, I, what became clear, emphasized not the personal attachments that came from this new marital arrangements, but the permanency it offered in a world of chaos. But, I want to emphasize, and this will be the last thing I, I highlight here, not everyone was convinced by this doctrine. When rumors start creeping out about, Nauvoo in eight, about polygamy in Nauvoo in 1841, lots of people strictly oppose it. Few opposed it more than Emma Smith, Joseph Smith's wife, and secondly, Hiram Smith. Joseph Smith's brother. When rumors started creeping out about polygamy, Hiram Smith marshals the high council, then the most powerful ecclesiastical body in Nauvoo, to root out these rumors of polygamy and stop what he feared was rampant sexual infidelity in the city. 
He was he did not know what was going on with Joseph Smith. He, he only heard rumors, and Joseph Smith was not willing to talk to him because Hiram had a different sense of, of what the moral values of the church were, what, what the doctrine justified. And so you get for several years these two trajectories going on at the same time. Joseph Smith expanding the polygamous practice. By the time he dies, over a, about a hundred men and women have entered plural unions. At the same time, Hiram Smith and Emma Smith and William Law and other city leaders are marshalling the high council. They're trying to find out what's going on with polygamy. It's not until May of 1843 that Hiram has a Seemingly miraculous and instantaneous conversion to the doctrine. I can talk more about that in the, in the discussion if you'd like. But his conversion to the doctrine symbolized a, a bigger shift in Nauvoo. Because Hiram then changed from being polygamy's biggest opponent to being polygamy's biggest defender. He's the one that urges Joseph Smith to dictate DNC 132. He's the one that starts spreading the doctrine the doctrine of polygamy to several other men. And significantly, he's the one that decides to take the DNC 132 text to the high council. Remember, the same vehicle he had been using to oppose polygamy for two years. And now at a meeting in August 1843, he presents it to them. And the, doctor, and the idea that he had been an ardent opponent to, he now was defending. And the men in the council were blindsided. And the men in that council who had worked with Hiram Smith for two years to oppose polygamy saw this as a betrayal. And several men in that high council then became the core group of dissenters against Joseph Smith within Nauvoo. It is finally then in the spring of 1844 that these two groups that opposed Joseph Smith's uh, societal vision those inside Nauvoo who saw polygamy as a, as a degradation of their morals and a betrayal of, of their uh, belief. And those outside Nauvoo who saw him as a lawless leader above political retribution joined together. <clears throat> and that's what led to Joseph Smith being taken to Carthage jail. And I'll close on this. Because it's very easy for us to see that by the end of Nauvoo, when Joseph Smith creates the Council of Fifty, he had lost faith in the democratic system. Early on in Nauvoo, they were hoping to save it. They thought block voting was their way to salvage democracy. But why the Council of 50, you see in the records, they see America as a failed experiment. But what sometimes gets overlooked is the people who march on Carthage jail and kill Joseph Smith shared that distrust of democracy with Smith because they decided to find justice outside the legal channels. For them, democracy proved to be too malleable, too corruptible, too slow to bring justice because politicians and legislatures were not willing to bring justice to the Mormons. Therefore, they had to take it in their own hands. So that's why I called Nauvoo a moment of democratic crisis, where people on both sides of the divide lost faith in the democratic system and decided that their only uh, course to justice is outside traditional systems. And with that, I want to move to questions. Please, if you have any questions regarding what I presented or about Nauvoo in general, I'd be happy to discuss it. Yeah. So I get this sense of, uh, of them making stabs at getting it right and continually getting it wrong. Right. With the benefit of retrospect, if you were going to re-engineer the Nauvoo experiment, 
so that the city survived. Survived. Ride. Yeah. What should they have done differently? Um, I think there could have been more, to use 21st century terms, more politically correct way to direct votes in Nauvoo. Uh, public declarations um, from prophetic leaders is probably not the best way to act like you're assimilating into a democratic culture. Uh, so I think the way they dealt with that, I think uh, trying to trust the, the judicial system a bit more would have helped. In 1944 or 42 into early 43, when they trust a circuit court judge to free Joseph Smith with the writ of habeas corpus, that was the proper way to do it. In the summer of 1843, when they allowed the city court to free Joseph Smith on state charges, that probably wasn't the best way to do it. If they could have remained, kept hope, because that's the thing that blows me away. At every point in the Nauvoo story, even up to the end, state politicians were mostly willing to go along with what the Mormons were doing as long as they, you know, played by the rules. Like, they had the ear of politicians. So if they could have just stayed that way, I think uh, uh, things could have turned out differently. I also fear, I don't know if things could have turned out differently with polygamy, though. As, if, as soon as rumors and dissidents come out with polygamy, I don't know how that could have been salvaged. I don't know if those two things could fit together. So, thanks for the question. Yeah, in the back. I had a question about Smith's, Joseph Smith's presidential campaign. Yeah. What were the expectations associated with that, particularly yeah. in light of what you're talking about with his... Um, sort of declining faith in the democratic system. He's sort of, yeah. you know, on the one hand, he's losing faith in it, but, but on the other hand, sort of playing by the rules. Right. right. He's going along, well, he's also going this path with the Council of Fifty. So I guess what were, what were the expectations associated with that? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I will say, I'm not convinced Joe Smith ever thought he had a chance to win the presidency. I see him and the others viewing it as a... Um, a protest candidacy, a chance to spread their word, to hope to gain sympathy. Because at several moments in Nauvoo, they won the PR war by just getting their message out. And so I think they saw Joseph's presidential campaign as a chance to do that. That said, they worked as if they thought that there was a goal to actually win. They sent out hundreds of what they called electioneering missionaries. They established are going to be state conventions in each state to elect Joseph Smith, kind of like primaries today. They're going to have a national uh, Mormon party convention in Baltimore, which just so happens to be the city where the Whigs and Democrats hold their uh, national conventions. Then. Um, I like the words of Spencer McBride, who's an editor for uh, the Joseph Smith Papers Project and is writing a book on Joseph Smith's presidential campaign. He puts it this way, that like it would have taken a miracle for Joseph Smith to win, but the Mormons believed in miracles, so like there's a chance. Of, I'm not willing to go that far. I think they saw it more as a protest uh, stunt, um, but they, whenever they do something, they do something a hundred percent. I don't think they would have taken some of the radical measures they were planning if they thought Joseph Smith had a uh, had a real chance to win. Thank you. Yeah. Don. Talk some more about why you think Hiram Smith changed his mind about polygamy. All right, thank you. Um, I, 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 try to, I try to give you ways to tee me up on things I want to talk more about, and that's one of them. Um, because to talk about Hiram's conversion, we also need to talk about another person, Sarah Ann Whitney. And I promise I'm going to get to Hiram, but you need this backstory for it to make sense. In this, Sarah Ann Whitney was one of Joseph Smith's teenage plural wives. She was 17 when sealed to the prophet in uh, July... Uh, 1842. 
Um, she's also the best documented plural wife we have from the Nauvoo period because we have several documents from the time. We have lots of documents later on, but we have several documents from the time uh, talking about polygamy. The first is of the ritual with Sarah and Whitney uh, itself. Uh, Joseph Smith dictates a revelation that he, to uh, Newell K. Whitney, Sarah and Whitney's uh, father, uh, dictating what to say during the ritual and explaining the theology. Um, but what I find significant about the Sarah and Whitney story is that several times she tries to push back to either get more clarification, to get more concessions. It seems pretty clear that she is at least trying to understand what the heck she's being moved into. Because honestly, we don't know how much of a say she has in what's going on here. Two documents show me this. One, several weeks later, after the sealing, Joseph transfers two plots of land into Sarah and Whitney's name. Now, it is so rare for a woman to own land in Nauvoo that the printed documents that they use for land transfer forms, they had to cross out him and his and write out she and her um, in it. And the, that's the first time I've seen a woman getting land in Nauvoo. And the only reason I see it is she's pestering, okay, I need some sense of stability here. I'm not fully confident on, on what my life is going to be like as a secret plural wife of yours. And so this land is a way for financial stability. But then we get another document. I promise I'm getting to Hiram Smith. Um, a few years ago, the Joseph Papers website very secretly uploaded a new document that historians did not even know existed. A document dated March 23rd, 1843, in Joseph Smith's own hand, that's a blessing to Sarah Ann Whitney. This blessing explicitly promises to Sarah Ann Whitney that she and her family are going to be eternally sealed so that none of you can be lost in the family due to the covenant she has entered. How many of you are familiar with the famous Orson Whitney speech of, of when a ceiling is placed on a family, it's so that all, none of the family members can be lost. If someone wanders, the divine tentacles will reach out and pull them back in. Have you guys heard that a little bit before? It's from this document. Because Sarah Ann Whit Whitney keeps this document in her possession until her death, and then it goes into Orson Whitney's hands, and then it goes in the First Presidency vault, uh, not to be known until it just arrived on the Joseph Papers website a few years ago. But there's a question. Why does that document exist? We don't have any other blessings from Joseph Smith's hand. In fact, we have very few documents from Joseph Smith's hands in general in Nauvoo. Well, the dating gives some uh, reasons. I promise we're getting to hire. <laughs> March 23rd, 1843, the date of this blessing to Sarah Ann Whitney is one day after her 18th birthday. Now, her 18th birthday causes a couple issues. One, she might have been having a bit of a second chance, and she wants to have a reaffirm. Okay, can you tell me again what I'm getting out of this ceiling? But the other issue is, what am I going to do now that I'm 18 and I'm of the age of courtship and marriage? There's going to be, I'm, I'm from a prominent family in Nauvoo. What am I going to say to my suitors? And on the same day that she gets this blessing, another guy in Nauvoo also gets a blessing from Joseph Smith, a guy by the name of Joseph Kingsbury. Joseph Kingsbury had been married to Sarah Ann Whitney's sister. Sarah Ann Whitney's sister died the previous fall, leaving him a widower. Now, both of these individuals get a blessing on March 23rd, which I don't think is a coincidence. 
It seems there's a meeting to decide what do we do with Sarah and Whitney now that she's dating life. Well, we're going to marry these two together. In what Joseph Kingsbury calls in his own words, a pretended marriage. <laughs> they kind of take her off the, off the market. But what do we offer Joseph Kingsbury? What does he get out of this relationship? Well, in the blessing he receives from Joseph Smith, he is promised the opportunity to be sealed to his deceased wife. Now, as far as I can gather, and I promise, I have tried to do all the research on this, but as far as I can gather, this is the first reference we have to a vicarious sealing between a living and a deceased person. And for in fact, the first reference to a vicarious sealant or vicarious ritual outside of baptisms for the dead. Now, of course, we know the foundation for that doctrine are there with ba that baptisms for the dead. But here we have the doctrine that, that the sealing ritual can allow someone to be sealed to someone who's dead. Now, to Hiram Smith, several, only a few weeks after this is done with Sarah and Whitney and Joseph Kingsbury, Hiram Smith converts to polygamy. The doctrine I think that, I, that gets Hiram Smith to convert is polygamy allows him the chance to be sealed to his deceased wife, Jerusha Smith, as well as his current wife, Mary Fielding Smith. And the reason why I think that's the case is two days after he converts to the doctrine, we know the day he converts to the doctrine because William Clayton writes in his journal, two days later, he is sealed to both Jerusha and Mary Fielding in the sealing ritual. Um... And then, even further, that makes me think this was why he converted. Um, that's the doctrine he uses to convert others that fall. That's what the high council members say when he presents a doctrine of polygamy. He says, well, this is one of the things that polygamy does. It allows those of you who have a deceased spouse to be sealed to that spouse as well as your current spouse. So that's a set of, of circumstances that I see lead to Hiram Smith's conversion. Thank you for that long divergence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, happiness other to Nancy Reagan. Um, how sure can we be that Joseph Smith authored it, and what 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 do you think? Yeah. So the question is about the happiness letter to, to Nancy Reagan. For some background, um, Joseph Smith, like many of us, can have some rough patches. And in the spring of 1842, he has a few rough patches where women he reaches out to plural, for plural wives turn him down. Among those who turn him down is Nancy Rigdon, the daughter of Sidney Rigdon. Um, and there's been a, a letter that's written that was from Joseph to Nancy Rigdon that, that is referred to as the happiness letter. How many of you are familiar with the phrase from Joe Smith, happiness is the object and design of our existence and will be the end thereof if we follow the covenant. I forget the end. of. I'm actually impressed I remembered it that far. Um, that letter we have through John C. Bennett. Now, John C. Bennett was Nauvoo's first mayor, a prominent convert to the LDS Church in Nauvoo in 1840, who later uh, has a falling out, we'll say, with Joseph Smith and the church. And he claims that I have this letter from Joseph Smith to Nancy Rigdon trying to convince her of polygamy. Now, we've kind of canonized this letter since then because it has some nice teachings in it that fit the broader gospel. But lately, some historians, including one who worked for the Joseph Smith Papers Project, a guy by the name of Garrett Dirkman, who argues that 
maybe we should be a bit skeptical of this letter because we don't have a we don't have the the original copy of the letter all we have is john c bennett who is probably not the most reliable of exposers publishing it in an anti-mormon uh, tribunal so can we really trust the doctrine my answer to that is the the ideas found in the letter and even the rhetoric itself seems pretty common with what Joseph Smith was doing at the time. So I tentatively accept it with the caveat knowing that I can't be 100% sure that it's authentic, but it fits the rationale that I find Joseph Smith using uh, to teach other people about plural marriage. It fits the doctrine that's being shared at the time. So by atextual cues, I think it's authentic. Yeah, thanks for the question. Yeah. You attempted this earlier also on uh, Joseph's presidential platform. Yeah. Certainly every commentator on that topic does not necessarily agree with every other commentator. Right. What can you offer us in that regard? So Joseph Smith's presidential platform um, has a lot of fascinating details in it. Um, I've already mentioned that I see it more as a protest candidate, so I think that's how we should frame the, the platform in it. Because Joseph is a very energetic and enthusiastic politician. He's not the most systematic political thinker. And let me give you an example. One of the key arguments in his political pamphlet and in his platform is we need to strengthen the federal government. If we leave things to state authority, then what happens when the governor is the head of a mob? That was the rhetoric he would So on the one hand, he's all for expanding the federal government. He's even a fan of the National Bank. He says we need to restart the National Bank because, I mean, he's had experience in Kirtland. What happens when you don't have a regulated financial system? But in that same pamphlet, guess who he calls the acme of the American political tradition, the apex of the best of the presidents? Andrew Jackson, who is one totally against federal government authority. And two, he's the one that killed the National Bank. <laughs> so I don't think Joseph Smith was a close student of uh, the, the political history. He had other things to do. Um, I think to him, his campaign was more of a cultural campaign. He liked Andrew Jackson because Andrew Jackson was an outsider. He was a cultural warrior. He represented the strong man who can come in and save government, which is how Joseph Smith kind of viewed himself, even if he didn't really align with Andrew Jackson's uh, political platform. But he had other things in, in his uh, platform that were fascinating. He wanted a gradual abolition of slavery. He wanted to annex Texas. He wanted to cut congressional salaries in half. Um, Mostly populist messages that you would find on uh, uh, North, North, uh, northern candidates. Um, he also, for reasons that sometimes when you dig into political arguments from the 1840s, it's really boring in a slog because they care about political issues that were really important back then, but just don't fall on our register now. Let me give you an example. Like, the second most important thing in Joseph Smith's platform behind strengthening the federal government was free sailors' rights. So, yeah. Hear, here. Yeah, hear, here. Huzzah! Um, so, yeah, those are the, the, a few of the, the key issues in, in his presidential campaign. Other questions? Yeah. 
So you told us what was not in the notes of yeah. the Council of 50. Can you give us some of the highlights of what was? Yeah, so some of the highlights that are in the Council of 50, because we get a lot of fascinating things. Uh, in fact, um, I think that you can't understand Nauvoo without reading the Council of 50 minutes anymore, because they reveal so much of the internal discussions that we did not have access to before. Let me highlight a few of these. Um, one, they propose their own new constitution for world government, to replace the U.S. Constitution and all human governments. Um, at, in fact, at their first meeting, they set a committee led by Parley P. Pratt to write a new constitution. It turns out to be a harder task than they expected. <laughs> turns out constitutions are not easy to write. Um, at every week, they were like, do we have any update from the Constitution Committee? And Parley Pratt would say, next week. <laughs> Uh, eventually they come up with basically a rough draft of the first part of a constitution that basically has a rambling preamble that denounces all human constitutions for not uh, uh, acknowledging God's role in human affairs. And then it has three articles. One, God is the author of government. Two, the prophets and priesthood leaders are the, are the appointed leaders on earth. Three, the judges should make sure that laws are, uh, are uh, done fairly. And that's basically it. <laughs> and then the very next week, I feel bad for Parley Pratt because they worked for a month on this. And the very next week, Joseph Smith declares and dictates a new revelation that says there will not be a written council or a written constitution. This council is the constitution. And Parley Pratt uh, records that they burned the const the, their drafted constitution at that point. <coughs> Luckily, it was recorded in the minutes. Uh, a, a few other things from the Council of 50. Um, their detailed conversations to go settle down in Texas. Um, when they thought that they might be kicked out of Nauvoo and out of America, they start thinking, well, where can we go? In fact, that's one of the driving forces of the Council of 50. If we move outside of Nauvoo, what type of government are we going to have? Well, a theocracy. Texas. Texas is in an interesting position in 1844. They'd been an independent republic for about a decade by that point. But they wanted to be annexed into the American government. But America is dithering in annexing them. Anyone know why? Slavery. The slavery issue. We don't want to add this big slave state that's going to disproportionately affect our, our careful balance. Texans are growing concerned because at any moment, Mexico might ride back up with their army and retake Texas into the Mexican uh, nation. So, so Texas sends feelers to the Mormons and say, why don't you come down and settle in Texas? We'll give you 100,000 acres of land out as what is now present-day Nacogdoches. Um, they even set up, set up secret correspondence with Sam Houston, one of my favorite parts of the story because of my, I teach at Sam Houston State. Um, no, that's not my favorite. My favorite part is in Joseph Smith's diary when they recorded a summary of these discussions. They said, we set up delegates to go down to Texas, except they worry, oh no, what if someone steals Joseph Smith's diary and finds out about our plans? We need a coded language. So they cross out Texas, and they write in a code name, Saxit. <laughs> you guys got there? Texas spelled backwards. And they're like, nailed it. <laughs> so 
by the next year, when they more seriously look for, for further uh, westward options, Texas is no longer an option. Why? It's annexed by America in 1845, and they're wanting to get out of America. Third major thing out of the Council of 50 Minutes, besides all internal discussions that are fascinating. Um, actually, I'm going to add one more point at the end. Um, third major thing, we get their discussions of westward expansion much more explicitly than we have in other documents. For instance, we learn that by the fall of 1845, they're talking about settling the Great Salt Lake Valley which is a lot earlier than we typically have. Historians typically thought that it wasn't until winter quarters that they decided we're not going to California, we're going to settle in Texas. Wrong decision. Um, um, so, yeah, sorry. Yeah, they, that they settled in Utah instead of California. That was the wrong decision. Um, one final thing we get out of the Council of 15 Minutes, and then I'll go to this question over here. Um, we get vigorous debates between many different people in Nauvoo whose voices are otherwise lost. Because in the Council of 50, you spoke according to your place in age seniority. Except for Joseph Smith. He speaks first. Um, but everyone else, it goes by age. So we get vigorous debates over political matters. And we get voices in Nauvoo that we otherwise don't hear. Which is quite fascinating. So those are a few things out of the Council of 50 that, that are worth highlighting. Yeah. So... All of the narratives about uh, government, distrust of the government, wanting to create a different government, the government's let us down, and uh, and some of the earlier things you were quoting from Joseph Smith, you know, could sort of just be lifted right up wholesale and transferred to 2020 right. political life. So. Um, what I'm curious about is, what do you think are the mechanisms, when we have a, a global worldwide church now, what do you think are the mechanisms that, that maintain that same distrust of government yeah. after all these years? I think because within the LDS tradition, we're often conditioned to believe that those who lead us should share the same values and interests that we do. And there can be great distrust when we see elected officials, global leaders, who don't share those values. That can be quite discomforting. Um, so I think that's one measure. I think there's also a measure of, of a distrust of, 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 a, a, of a democratic heterogeneous society of lots of different people mixing in. How can we balance all these different values? And, we feel, and when we feel that our values are in the minority. And it's not receiving the institutional support or validation that we want. We don't feel happy with that either. So I think it's a, a mix between those two things. But I think it's also a reflection of how far we come that when we have that discomfort, we don't think the solution is to upend the democratic government, right? We, we try to fit in the traditional uh, system, whether it be through voting on moral issues but in general, we're not going to see ecclesiastical leaders get involved in explicitly political actions outside of the moral uh, issues. So I think on the one hand, we see this, this symmetry throughout the tradition, but we also see how far we've come. Thanks. Morris. You mentioned that in, you were, in your opinion, Louisa Beeman was the first uh, plural yeah. marriage of Joseph Smith, and I'm wondering if you feel that the Fanny Alger uh, situation was was just an affair? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. My answer is I don't know. The reason why I call Louisa Beeman the first plural wife is 
whatever went on with Fanny Alger, even if it was a form of plural marriage that's based on kind of some biblical uh, patriarchal teaching that the patriarchs of the Bible have plural wives and so prophets of the latter day should have plural wives, a kind of restorationist idea. I don't see the theology that justifies the Louisa Beeman ceiling in 1841 present in Kirtland. Does that make sense? So I frankly am going to admit uh, ignorance to what exactly was the case with Louisa Beeman. I'm also not convinced there was anything with Louisa Beeman because most of the... I, I, yeah, sorry. I'm, thank you. I'm, I don't know what the case was with Fanny Alger. I haven't studied it, but I'm also not convinced there was anything with Fanny Alger because most of the documents that connect Joseph Smith with Fanny Alger in some way come decades later at a time when Fanny Alger's family is trying to establish their family's significance in the Restoration. And one of the ways to do that is say, my sister was the first one sealed to Joseph Smith as a plural wife. Um, so the short answer is, I don't know how to handy, handle Fanny Alger. I'm going to take the, the boring historian cop out and say, I haven't done enough research on it. But I will say conclusively that the theology, the, the network consanguineous sealing idea that justified the Louisa Beeman, uh, I see that as appearing in Nauvoo and not earlier. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> we now say in the church that we believe that the United States Constitution was God-inspired. Mm -hmm. How does that timing go, go along Yeah. With what you're talking about with the, the Council of Fifties? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a great question. How do we come to the point, how do we evolve from the point that in the Council of 50, they're explicitly saying that the Constitution is flawed to the dominant LDS teaching that has been around for over a century that the Constitution is inspired. In fact, we get out of DNC 101 the idea that God raised up these men to uh, establish this nation, implying that the Constitution is divine. Um, up until eight, the latter part of Nauvoo, Joseph and others would have firmly agreed that the Constitution was inspired, that there was something great, that the, that the problem was not the Constitution in America, but the people in charge of it, right? The people who are implementing the Constitution, they don't really know it. But by 1844, they've lost hope in that, in that situation. They say, no, there's a flaw in the Constitution, primarily that it does not acknowledge God's voice. That's their primary critique in the Council of 50 Minutes. They say the Constitution is flawed and cannot be redeemed because it not, does not mention God's voice. It's a godless document. Um, but they still, even at that point, try to wish, we wish the American Constitution can work. Maybe there's a way to make it work. And one of my favorite expressions of that anxiety is a few years later, when they're in winter quarters, on their march out to Mexico, remember, consciously leaving the United States... They are recruited by the American government to have a, a, a detachment of a military force to join the U.S.-Mexico War, what comes to be known as the Mormon Battalion. But when they march to Mexico, they choose their flag for marching, not the contemporary American flag of 1846, but a retrofitted eight, uh, 1776 flag with the 13 stars, <laughs> reflecting that we believe America in its original incarnation not in its current establishment. Now, this evolves over the next few decades where the saints continue to have a big gripe with the American government, especially with the anti-polygamy legislation, so much so that on several Fourth of July holidays, they fly the American flag half-mast. 
They kind of symbolize that they believe that, that the true America is dead. It's not until after 1890 and the church giving up its big concessions to become a, a, the state of Utah and be assimilated, which was one, polygamy, and two, accepting the American political system, which meant giving up their own church party that was called the People's Party, embracing the Democrats and the Republicans, and no longer having church involvement, that slowly we move away from that mindset of the U.S. Constitution being flawed. Because by that point, church members and leaders alike start re-embracing the idea from before that there should be a separation between church and state. And once they do that, you can see the U.S. Constitution as divinely inspired again. And then that becomes the predominant view in the 20th century. Could you talk a little bit about the Council of 50 enduring after the martyrdom? Did it not continue in some form yeah. in, in Utah? Yeah. Yeah, so it does. In fact, Brigham Young restarts the Council of 50. And the question was about what happens to the Council of 50 after uh, Joseph's martyrdom. Um, it lays dormant for the rest of 1844, but in January 1845, Brigham Young opens the Council of 50 again for two reasons. One, they're going to have to organize a lot of stuff, including a mass exodus. But two, it's a way for Brigham Young to uh, take a more authoritative position. Because we take for granted that Brigham Young becomes the leader of what comes to be the dominant LDS tradition or Mormon tradition out uh, after uh, Joseph's death. But there were several competing for that right, for that mantle. And Brigham Young had to fight for that. And one of the ways he gained authority over that was through polygamy, uh, the temple, but also the Council of 50, by taking control of the Council of 50. And the Council of 50 becomes a primary form of democratic, of primary form of government in Nauvoo, especially after Nauvoo city charter is revoked and they have no more city government. It then continues throughout uh, the March West, remains Brigham Young's primary form of leadership council up until they establish Utah. And then it becomes fuzzy how, what they're doing because we don't have access to those minutes yet. The LDS Church made, gave us access to the Nauvoo minutes of the Council of 50, but the Utah minutes of the Council of 50 are still restricted. So, how long did, does anyone know how long it, it went? No, nope. uh, we think that it mostly goes away. Again, I emphasize think because we don't know for sure. We think it goes away when Utah finally has a territorial government in 1851. <clears throat> Because basically the same people who are leading the Council of 50 are now leading the Utah territorial government. Um, but we're not sure. It then comes up again under John Taylor's presidency in the 1880s when he feels he's losing control of the Utah uh, territorial government due to the anti-polygamy uh, prosecutions. And so the Council of 50 has a resurgence. We have some of those minutes that became... Uh, 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 public knowledge because they got separated in other sources. Um, but in general, we don't know for sure until we get access to those documents. Yeah. So you used the phrase a little while ago when we were talking about um, that finally the church made these concessions in order to you know, finally come into the union. And you said um, that then they you know, were supportive of separation of church and state. And you didn't say religious freedom. <laughs> you said separation of church and state. So where would be the most explicit resources and sources of information on 
the church advocating for a separation between church and state. Yeah, the best case for this. Um, any of you familiar with the scholar Kathleen Flake? So she wrote a fabulous book titled The Politics of American Religious Liberty, or Religious Identity, Religious Liberty, one of those. Um, the case of Reed Smoot, Senator Reed Smoot of Mormon Post. So Reed Smoot is elected to the, to the U.S. Senate in 1903. He also happens to be a Mormon apostle. And this causes a national scandal. Can a Mormon apostle serve in the Senate? And this leads to a four-year congressional hearing. And the church is forced to make a number of concessions during that period, including rooting out the secret practice of polygamy that's still going on, and no longer interfering in political matters. And the government, in turn, decides to kind of step back. It's during that period that I would say most of those concessions where Joseph F. Smith, who's president at the time, has to explicitly come out that we respect this division of church and state. state. We're not involved in that anymore. And that actually caused a lot of consternation among the saints. Because they're used to an older pattern. So I really recommend Kathleen Flake's book. It's great. And she she ends with this wonderful quip that I think is a great summary. That for the LDS church to be assimilated in the broader culture, two things needed to happen. The church had to stop acting like a state. And the state had to stop acting like a church. (laughs) And once those two things happened, we could have a more collaborative uh, uh, experience. So going back to Mabu, you talked a lot about rumors and innuendos and things that's going on, and you also talked a lot about the church leadership. Yeah. So if you had Joe or Jane Average relative who's living in the city of Mabu, how much does this impact them? What do they know? How does this impact their thoughts, their, their involvement in the church? So they would hear rumors going around. They would have no idea how, what are true, what's false. Um, but the rumors get around pretty quickly. Uh, but usually, I would imagine most dismiss them because you have some pretty firm denials from the pulpit by Joseph Smith and others saying there's no polygamy going on. I imagine they take them at their, at their word on that. Um, but rumors spread quickly. And one of the things that, that, that struck me about how far these rumors are spreading is this, this male correspondence between a set of five sisters. I wish I could write more on them, but all I have is like five letters from these five different sisters in 1842-43. Um, all of them are housed at the LDS Church History Library. The letters, not the sisters. Um, <laughs> and, um, and they're... Five fascinating sisters who join different religious groups and are kind of updating each other on what's going on. And in early 1844, I think it was like February, one of the sisters who joined a Methodist sect up in Michigan writes a letter to her sister who's, uh, who joined Mormonism and gathered in Nauvoo. And in this letter, between this newsy stuff of like, this is what's going on with your other sister and your aunts, and at the bottom, this is where I'm going to go next, there's this one line that says, Have you been sealed to Joseph Smith as a wife yet? (laughs) And when I read that, I'm like, wow. That's how far the rumors are going. That you have these people in very distinct communities who have heard these rumors and want to ask about them. Um, So I think rumors are spreading. That's why the number of public uh, denouncements of polygamy grow as Nauvoo moves along, because they know it. 
I think by 1845, it kind of becomes a public secret because A, more and more people are entering the practice, and B, when the Nauvoo Temple is finished that December, a lot of them would enter the temple and receive, surprise, polygamy is a doctrine, we're going to have lots of people sealed to one another, right? To fulfill, because you get, um, you get of the 200 men and 700 women who enter polygamy in Nauvoo, about 80% of them do so in the last two months. Now, I imagine that that was somewhat of a surprise to a lot of them, but just thinking about humans operate, I would think they'd have to know a little bit by that point. Otherwise, it'd be even more of a shock, if that makes sense. So it's really a church within a church in Nauvoo. Those who know the secret stuff going on and those who are just hearing rumors of it. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in your comment about the city court's use of habeas corpus uh, powers. Yeah. In, in that it was my understanding that that's one of the things that Bennett negotiated for that was included in the Nauvoo Charter. By your comment, did you mean that politically it was a mistake or technically it was a legal mistake? It, it was a legal mistake. So the Nauvoo City Charter followed all other charters on this issue by saying that the Nauvoo Municipal Court has the authority to try writs of habeas corpus on charges against Nauvoo ordinances. Okay. Oh. That took another city council ordinance to or resolution to change that years later. Oh. Does that make sense? Okay. And when they change it, they do two things. One, it grants the Nauvoo's uh, city ca uh, municipal court the authority to try char arrest warrants from outside their jurisdiction, which is not found outside Nauvoo. And two, it grants them the authority to try the merits of the arrest, or merits of the charges, not just the arrest, okay. which goes beyond what habeas corpus can do. Okay. So that's why when they do that, they end up having to go to the circuit court anyway, who does have the authority to try the merits of the, of the arrest warrant, but not the city, if that makes sense. Okay. Now, with the Nauvoo Charter, I will say... Um, and then, are we? Is it time to wrap up, Morris? Are you pretty soon? Yeah, I mean, right. maybe one more question. <laughs> right. um, I will say with the Nauvoo Charter, um, there was nothing explicitly in the Nauvoo Charter that was different than any other of the other city charters in Illinois at the time. In fact, most of the pieces were word from word from the five other city charters that were passed in the pre in the two years previous to that. But what made it unique? was a specific collection. Like they took the most expansive powers from all the different city charters and pushed them together. But one step beyond that, it was how they then interpreted the city charter that made it uh, tough. All right, one more question. So make it a good one. Yeah. Yeah, your comment about it wasn't until uh, 1890 and later that uh, the church began to realize the importance of the founding fathers and what they did. And I'm kind of wondering how that squares with the... Uh, uh, vision at the St. George Temple. Right, right, right. No, that's a good question. So in 1877, Wilford Woodruff, um, while um, while working in the St. George Temple, claims a vision of founding fathers and other eminent men, I think is the word that, that's used. Um, yeah, they definitely see some esteem in the founding fathers, uh, and, and Wilford Woodruff then performs the temple ordinances for all the deceased presidents, save for one. Anyone want to guess the one? Martin Van Buren. Remember the guy who told Joseph Smith, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. Joseph Smith's shade runs deep. Um, um, but uh, uh, 
But on top of that, yes, they do. I was probably overstating a bit. They definitely reverence the founders, but they acknowledge that there were flaws in the government that were set up. Yeah, so, so it was this anxiety, this dynamic. So thank you for clarifying that's that. That's actually I, I my understanding, yeah. too, is that they were not happy with the way in which it was being handled or interpreted. Right. The, basically, the federal government wasn't recognized anywhere other than D.C. Right, and at least not until the Civil War. That's one of the things that the Civil War and the Civil Reconstruction War Amendments, the 13th <coughs> and what I find significant, then I'll close so Morris can retake control of this house here. Um, <laughs> one of the things that strikes me about Joseph's argument is his argument that the federal government needs, that needs to be strong enough and willing to intervene in protecting the rights of minority groups. That was not common in 1830s, 1840s Jacksonian America, but it becomes common through the abolitionists and the anti-slavery activists, and then it becomes codified in law. So I think to understand the full extent of our democratic history, Nauvoo serves as such a significant episode where all these tensions and contradictions come together, even if in an exaggerated scale. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Podcast in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.